I, I'm particularly thankful tonight uh, to Pastor John and the elders for the opportunity to open God's Word. I had studied a month and a half ago, some of you were here, Habakkuk chapter 3, and I was ready to preach, and then the allergies got me, and I could only see men walking around like trees. Uh, but what I could not see was my notes at all. So I'm thankful uh, that night to listen to a sermon on the rich young ruler and to be reminded of our need to lay down all our treasures and self-love to follow Christ. I'm very thankful that we get to look at God's word together tonight in Habakkuk chapter three. So if you're not there already, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Habakkuk chapter three. And I'm thankful that we get to finish this book together. And as you turn, why don't we pray? Trust this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for a great Sunday with your saints gathered around your word. Thank you for reminding us of the miracle of the new birth, the change you've done in each of our lives. Lord, we pray that tonight you would continue to form us to the image of your son. That you would accomplish by your spirit and your word, your purposes in our hearts. That you'd revive our souls, bring joy into our hearts, make us wise, enlighten our eyes, Give us a greater glimpse of you that causes us to tremble. Strengthen our faith in a tiresome world. We pray for your glory tonight. In your son's name we pray, amen. What does faith look like? What does faith look like? When I was a math teacher in a past life, I began to realize that students would often use words that they were unaware of the actual meaning of those words. Now, I'm not talking about hypotenuse or polynomial. This had nothing to do with class itself. Uh, this had to do as students would hang out during break, and in their conversations, I would overhear the use of words they weren't really sure what they meant. The one I always remember is the word literally, such as kids in class during first period saying, I literally woke up five minutes ago. Or coming back from lunch saying, I literally ate like a pig. Now, they weren't, uh, they weren't napping on the way to school, nor were there troughs out on the blacktop. This, the point was that they misused the word. And my guess is a lot of us who have grown up in church, who've sort of learned a uh, type of Christianese, can likewise misuse words. Words that we hear over and over again, but we're not exactly clear on what they mean. And one of those words I want to talk about tonight is faith. What does faith look like practically? How would you answer that question? Perhaps you would say faith is belief. Faith is trust. Perhaps you'd say faith is zeal. Faith is obedience to the Lord or allegiance to the Lord. Faith looks like worship or faith looks like evangelism. I think all of those are very valid and good answers. I don't want to bait and switch and say all of you are wrong. Those those are good answers, and those are all part of faith. Uh, But consider the answer of 16th century theologian John Calvin, who said that the chief exercise of faith is prayer. The chief way that we demonstrate our dependence on God and our belief in all of his promises is through the practice of prayer. For Calvin, prayer is the chief way we demonstrate our faith. On the flip side, prayerlessness is faithlessness. Well, why bring this up? 
because we are in the middle of a a disjointed study on the book of Habakkuk. And just by way of reminder, uh, Habakkuk, prior to chapter 3, has two chapters, and those chapters are really broken down into four parts. So you can look back at Habakkuk chapter 1. Part 1 was Habakkuk's complaint. And Habakkuk's complaint was very simple. God, Israel is evil. They do not walk in your ways. Why aren't you doing anything about it? That was verse 3. Why do you make me see wickedness and cause me to look on trouble? Indeed, devastation and violence are before me, and their strife and contention is lifted up. Yahweh's response is chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. Habakkuk, that's a really good point. I am going to do something about it. I'm going to judge Israel with the Babylonians. That's verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. They're going to come and ransack Israel as they do in 586 B.C. Habakkuk's response to that, chapter 1, verses 12, uh, all the way to chapter 2, verse 1, is, wait a second. I think you missed my point. You keep looking at evil and not doing anything about it. And his complaint is the Babylonians are worse than us. So, uh, so, so why are you judging us with them? Chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to see evil. You cannot look on trouble. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? Why do you look and not do anything? Chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk says, I will wait for your response. I will see what God says. I'll be corrected in my thinking. And God answers. He answers in chapter 2. He says, the certainty of judgment is coming on Israel. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. It will not delay. It will surely come. Write it down. Tell the people about it. He also, if you look at chapter 2, has all of these woes where God says, I judge everyone who rebels against me, whether Israelite or Babylonian, in my time. So verse 6, halfway through, and say, woe to him who increases what is not his. Verse 9, woe to him. Verse 12, woe to him. Verse 15, woe to him. Verse 19, woe to him. God says, I will judge. And here's what I need you to do, Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. Ah, The righteous will trust me. The righteous will trust, verse 14, that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh, and the righteous will trust quietly. Verse 20 of chapter 2, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. He calls Habakkuk, therefore all of us in the midst of trouble, in the midst when we're not really sure what God is doing, to quietly, patiently trust his character. To have faith. And so, what does faith look like? For Habakkuk, faith looks like chapter 3. What does Habakkuk do? He prays. He goes to God in prayer. In faith, his complaints and his concerns remain quiet, and he prays. Tonight, I want to ask, do you have faith? And do we see your faith? Do you see your faith in the way you pray? Because this, chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, is a faith-filled prayer. From the prophet, written down, not just uh, for his own personal journal, but so that all may hear. 
that all might recite this and rehearse this and even emulate this prayer. And as we read this, I'm going to read now chapter 3. As we read this, I want you to ask yourself, what does this chapter say about faith? And does my prayer life look like this? Let's read chapter 3, verses 1 through 19 together. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigenoth. O Yahweh, I have heard the report about you, and I fear O Yahweh, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In rage, remember compassion. God comes from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His brightness is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hands, and there is the hiding of his strength. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and measured out the earth. He looked and startled the nations. So the perpetual mountains were shattered, the ancient hills collapsed, but his ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under wickedness. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did Yahweh's fury burn against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the seas? that you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. Rods were sworn unto battle by word. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The downpour of waters passed by. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their lofty places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the brightness of your flashing spear. In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation with your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked to lay him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own sharpened rods the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the afflicted in secret. You tread on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips tingled. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no produce on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength, and he has set my feet like hind's feet. He makes me tread on my high places. For the choir director on my stringed instruments. This is God's very word. What lessons does Habakkuk 3 hold for us regarding faith and prayer? How do we learn from this passage praying with faith? I want to examine this prayer in four parts. I want to look at four aspects of Habakkuk's prayer. 
And as we look at this passage together, my, my hope is that this would strengthen your faith in times of trouble. Four aspects of Habakkuk's prayer, and they're in order. Number one, let's look at his request. Let's look at his request. This is verses one and two. Verses one and two. It reads here uh, that it's, this is what we see at the beginning of this prayer is it was meant to be practiced, even saying publicly, uh, according to the Shigianoth, that is either an instrument or some sort of musical arrangement. We see at the very end that this is for public singing. It's for the choir director. This is something that was supposed to be rehearsed, to be practiced by Israel. They're meant to learn things from it. And what does he pray? He says in verse 2, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. I have rightly heard of your works. Now notice, this correlates with what's happened in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, verse 5, God is speaking to Habakkuk, and he says, See among the nations and look, be also astonished, be astounded, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe it was recorded. I'm doing a, some of your translations say, a work in your days you not believe. And now Habakkuk is saying, I've seen your works. I understand. I didn't get it at first, but now I get it after all that you've revealed in chapter two. And he prays three things. He prays for God to revive his work. It says, revive your work in the midst of the years, make it known and to show compassion. That is he prays for God. God, I now understand your works, accomplish your purposes. God, I didn't understand Help all to understand what you're doing. And God, as I know now that you are bringing judgment on all who disobey you, Lord, show compassion. Show mercy on whom whatever would turn to you. Do your work. Make your work known. Be gracious. That's how he begins. It's really short, but those are his requests. Let's move to number two. This is the biggest part, and we'll spend most of our time here. The first part is request. Second part of this, let's call this rehearsal. Rehearsal, verses 3 to 15. We'll spend most of our time here, because as you see, it's the largest section of our chapter of this prayer. If you want to understand this prayer of Habakkuk, you need to understand how he starts in verse 3. He begins with, God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, understanding what is going on here, there's a lot going on. There's epic stuff, there's nature stuff, there's mountains, there's water, there's nature, there's all sorts of war language. What do we make of this? Our, our grid for how we're going to understand this, our first clue is this idea of Mount Teman and Mount Paran. Well, what, what is this? Well, Teman, these are regions in the land of Edom. This is uh, southeast of the nation of Judah, um, this is part of the nation that Israel had passed through. And Paran, that's a mountainous region in the Sinai Peninsula, also south of uh, Judah. These are regions that Israel would have passed through as they left Egypt on their way to the promised land. And so what is this a reference to? As you would have brought up Teman and you would have brought up Paran, this also might be a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 33, you would have thought of Israel's time in the wilderness. You would have thought about their time getting out of Egypt. You also would have thought about their time entering in and conquering the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised them. 
See, this is what Habakkuk's doing in chapter 3. He's remembering and rehearsing the acts of God in the past. Chapters 3 through 15 are not what God is doing right after Habakkuk begins praying. It's Habakkuk's prayerful reflection on what God has already done. The, the first, let me explain why this is important. The first reference to prayer that many uh, commentators think is found in the Bible is found in Genesis 4, 26, when it says, this is after the birth of Seth, uh, after Cain kills Abel. It says at the very end of the chapter, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, why is that important to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, in, in history, not just ancient history, but even in more modern history, someone's name had a lot to do with who they are, or even nicknames today have a lot to do with someone's identity. So for example, if I say someone is a Benedict Arnold, I don't mean that they've been alive since the 1700s. I'm calling them a traitor. And we see that in the Bible as well. Names meant something. So Joshua, his name means Yahweh saves, and that's the theme of the book of Joshua. There's a guy named Nabal uh, who interacts with David in the book of Samuel, and he is a fool, and his name means fool. Likewise, Noah, his name meant rest because he was supposed to give rest to the people. Names mean something. And so if prayer, Genesis 4, is equated with calling upon the name of the Lord, that means prayer is to make request, offer praise, make confession in light of who God is. It's a response to the revelation of who he is. And so what we find here, Habakkuk, his prayer is rehearsing, remembering, reciting, reminding himself who God is. And I'll just show you this. We can, we can get into the weeds and the nitty gritty of all of this. I want to keep a big picture, but let's, let's just kind of look. Who does Habakkuk remember, or what does God, Habakkuk remember about God? Who is God according to Habakkuk's prayer? Well, God is majestic, according to Habakkuk's prayer. He begins by saying that he is, God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. He is the Holy One. He begins this whole history lesson of remembering who God is by remembering that God is holy. One author said it like this, the entire history of Israel is the work of holiness. Now, when we go to pray, we, we don't just remember that God is holy in the sense that he is pure, though he is sinless and we are sinful, God's holiness has to do with his separateness, his transcendence, how we are not like him. Another author said it like this, that the holiness of God is, highlights the radical and dangerous otherness of God, his separation and elevation over all possible rivals. And so when we go to God in prayer, we do not approach him like an equal. We approach him like one, verse three, whose splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. He is so magnificent, so transcendent, so beautiful that his brightness is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hands and we don't even see the fullness of his strength. It is 
hidden. God is completely otherly. This is what the nation of Israel sings in Exodus 15. Exodus 15, 11, they sing, Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? He is not like us. And so several years ago, we were at a camp. Ever since then, I've always had students volunteer to pray at this camp because there was one worker there. She meant the best. I, I legit believe she loved Jesus. But her prayer started with, all right, everybody, let's pray. Hey, God. It started with, hey, God. Which again, like, we go to him like our father, child, childlike faith. It's, it's totally fine. I don't think she's a heretic. Let's not condemn her or anything. But we don't approach God like that. He's approachable. He calls us to come to him. Children, father. But it's children come to their father, but he's above us. He's greater than us. He's unimaginably more glorious than anything we can comprehend. So we come to him understanding his weightiness. You also see highlighted in this that Yahweh is irresistible. What I mean by that is his purposes cannot be thwarted. There is so much, you heard it as I read it, there's so much language of war here and terror here. There's pestilence and plagues. And what you find is God is sovereign over nations who cannot resist him. We highlighted that last time. And God is sovereign over nature, which cannot be tamed. Nature and nations unable to resist his will. And so verse 6 says, the perpetual mountains, well, they're shattered. The ancient hills collapsed, but his ways are everlasting. Verse 7, nations tremble as they see his power. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. And in verse 10, it says, the mountains saw you and writhed. Every aspect of life which you cannot tame, foreign governments and unruly nature, God rules over it. I mean, think about the language that's used. Mountains. Do you notice how little control we have over mountains? How long until recent history it used to take to travel over mountains? How even now, if there are snow, if snow on the mountains, you can't drive. And some of you, I mean, I've seen some of you drive with chains. You still can't drive even if there's snow, right? The mountains are hard to, to, to conquer. That's why even with all our technology, on average, five people die every year attempting to climb Mount Everest. Do you notice also the language of water? We think like, oh, stream, lake, great. Water's unruly. Water's dangerous. My family and I were on vacation in San Diego two months ago. We were down in Mission Bay. Some of you have been down there before. It's, it's a really cool spot. San Diego, self-proclaimed America's finest city. And you know, their sports are bad, but everything else is great about the town. And, um, and if you've been down there before, there's, there's sort of Bayside, and then a bunch of restaurants, beach homes, and then Beachside. We, we're usually on the beachside. And it's, I mean, people are down there on vacation. It's a slow pace of life, and people want to come relax. And every once in a while, a helicopter comes by. And when one helicopter comes by, you think, oh, that's normal. And when it circles a second time, you get nervous. And then a third and a fourth. Every time it continues to circle over the area, your, the pit in your stomach gets a little deeper. 
See, that day we were there, there was an 18-year-old who had just graduated high school, uh, who'd played football while we were there. We were there in early June. And, well, it wasn't a shark. It wasn't a 50-foot wave. It was a riptide. He was pulled under, swimming with two friends, best shape of his life, and he drowned suddenly. Because water, we can't tame it. I mean, people for years couldn't travel over rivers if, if the water level is too high. There's a reason uh, when you want to go whitewater rafting, you, you want to know what class rapids they are because it's dangerous. But here is this thing that, I mean, the people of Israel knew they were not a seafaring people. They knew water was dangerous. God rules over it. He dominates it. He controls it. Verse 10 says, The downpour of waters passed by. The deep, even the deep ocean gave forth its voice. Even it lifted high its hands in submission to you. Friends, you can't drive over a pass if there's snow. You can't go out into the ocean if the waves are too high. But mountains and waves are unable to resist God's will. And so part of this prayer as Habakkuk rehearses that aspect of God is, if nature can't resist God's judgment, you think nations will be able to? You think individuals will be able to? Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the judgment of God cannot be stopped by anything. What makes you think you'll be able to avoid it by ignoring it? God is irresistible. What else does Habakkuk rehearse? Well, like I said, many of these things have historical background too. He remembers that Yahweh is a warrior. He remembers that God makes war with the enemies of his people. He remembers that the enemies of Israel never stood a chance. It says, your bow was made bare. That's the idea of the bow being unshathed, unsheathed. The arrow is pulled. He's ready to strike. Rods were sworn unto battle by your word. He is making war. And, and there's so much history in the back of Habakkuk's mind. Even as you read it, it certainly would have been there. Right? I mean, you think about all these references to water. How do you not think, first of all, of the Exodus, where God drowns the most powerful army in the world at that time in one event by splitting the seas and bringing it back together. Verse 15, you tread on the sea with your horses. Pharaoh comes to the Red Sea with his chariots and horses. God makes war with his horses on the waters. We read of other historical events. Verse 11, sun and moon stood in their lofty places. That's a historical event. Some of you have read before Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10, God is giving the land of Canaan over to the people of Israel. And as they're making war with the southern kingdom, they are chasing them down. Israel's is defeating them. And night's about to fall. And they don't have searchlights. So it seems like the enemy's going to get away. And Joshua prays that the sun and moon would stand still. And guess what? God answers. Except it's not so much that Joshua prayed and they won. It's that God made war. God answers the prayer. In fact, Joshua 10 says more people died by the hailstones that God was throwing on that very long day than by the nation of Israel. Uh, look at verse 12. In indignation, you marched the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. He defeats all those who resist his people on behalf of his people. 
Verse 13b, notice this. Think about this in regards to biblical history. You crush the head of the house of the wicked. You can't help but to think of Genesis chapter 3, of God promising to crush the head of the serpent in the future. And we know that's going to happen in the future. Why? Because he continues in the Old Testament to crush the head of the enemies of Israel. And so one day he will crush all. Why? Because Yahweh is a savior. That's the final attribute we see in this. Yahweh is a savior. It is important to remember that this is not just warfare for warfare's sake. God is not bloodthirsty. He avenges his people. He loves his people. And just as you would want justice for anyone that hurts your children, God executes justice on all those who harm his children. His fury burns, it says in verse 8. Look at verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. The end of verse 8 says, on your chariots of salvation he rescues. And how does he save? Well, he saves by reversals. Verse 14a, you pierced with his own sharpened rods the head of his throngs. Isn't that amazing how often God uses the, the biggest threat on his people to judge the enemies of his people? Think again of Exodus. Pharaoh says, I'm going to kill Israel. We're going to throw all the males into the Nile River. God says, you kill my son in the Nile. I'm going to kill your people in the Red Sea. Think about the book of Esther. Uh, that comedic and yet God-glorifying moment when, Morde- uh, when uh, Haman builds the gallows to kill Mordecai, only to be killed by the very gallows he himself built. In this ironic reversal where God continues to rescue his people. 14b says, they stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the afflicted in secret. Even in desperation, God rescues his people. Even when it seems like most of his people are about to be destroyed, God wins. I'm reminded of 2 Kings chapter 6, when the king of Syria gathers his armies to kill Elisha. And it looks bad for Elisha and his servant. And yet Elisha tells his servant, those who are with us, are more than they, because God is a rescuer of his people. Okay, let's summarize. Let's, let's kind of take the 30,000-foot view of this section again. God is majestic. God is uh, irresistible. He is a warrior and he's a savior. And so what do we notice? As we kind of look back at these, these 13 verses, what do we notice? Here's what you need to notice about this prayer, and this will be incredibly practical, practical for your life remembering outweighs request. Habakkuk spends more time rehearsing the character of God than making request to God. This is what it looks like to call upon the name of the Lord, to fellowship with him, that the priority becomes reminding yourself in prayer of who God is. Faith is remembering the character of God even when we don't feel like believing it. Even in that moment when it doesn't feel true. Friends, we pray in faith, rehearsing who he is. Do you do this? 
How do you pray when your mind is troubled? Life is hard, friends. Life is full of disappointment. There's disappointment with career. There's no marriage yet, no children yet, wayward children, health. In those times, do you rehearse? Do you remember? Do you preach to yourself again and call out to God based on who he has revealed himself to be? It's so easy to worry or to talk to others. But as Christians, we go to God in faith, remembering his character. And as we do, here's what I want you to think about tonight. As we do that, our faith is strengthened. We put those two things together. In faith, we rehearse the character of God. And as we in prayer rehearse the character of God, the result is that your faith is strengthened. This dual effect, we remember his character in faith, and as we meditate on his goodness, it therefore then strengthens our faith. So let me give you examples of what this looks like practically, how to apply what Habakkuk's doing. So you're in a disturbing social climate. You're a Christian in a country that is becoming less and less Christian. And you're worried because you're worried about your kids and you're worried about who's going to teach them what. And you're thinking about the future. And yet, you meditate on Habakkuk 2.14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. God, I... I don't know what the good old days were. I don't even know if they're as good as people say they were. But I know that one day in the future, the knowledge of your glory will cover this whole world. And so I can endure. Because I'm not holding out for what I want now. I'm holding out for what's coming later. I rest in his character to deliver it. And therefore, my faith is able to endure a hostile world. Or let's take the issue of evangelism. Take the issue of evangelism. I think about Isaiah 55. I have my friend who will not respond to the gospel. I have my son or my daughter who will not respond to the gospel. But I remember that just as the rain and the snow falls from the earth and falls to the earth and accomplishes its purpose, so Isaiah 55 11, so God's word goes forth and accomplishes its purposes. And I remember Isaiah 55, 7, that any who repent, any who come, God will be gracious and be merciful. So I'm continuing to evangelize, knowing, Lord, I'm not wasting my time. Your word is accomplishing it. And if they do repent, you will forgive. In faith, I call out and I leave with faith strengthened. Or in the midst of trials and sin, it is so easy for the Christian to not feel loved by God. Take your Bibles and uh, turn to Psalm 8411. Psalm 8411. Now I'm going to continue to share some verses. We'll get to Psalm 8411. It's easy to not feel loved by God. Uh, we'll take a break from trials for a second. Think about my sin. I mean, here's the sin I said. I would never do that again. I'm not going to talk that way again. I'm not going to think that way again. I'm not going to look that way again. And, and I did it again. And, and I know God's holiness. And I think... How does God love me? But I pray in faith. Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I don't feel like it. 
but his word says it, so I believe it. Or I think Revelation 1 verse 5, to him who loves us, speaking of Jesus Christ. Or as I read in my Bible reading this week, I think of John 16, the father himself, the father himself loves you because you have loved me, John 16, 27. And so I think, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I love Christ. Christ is my treasure. And though I don't feel like I'm, I feel like I'm irritating God by going to prayer after sinning. He loves me because of Christ. And the end result is by the spirit and by the word, your faith is strengthened. George Mueller was a missionary in the 1800s. He opened several orphan houses in England. We don't have time to tell you a a lot about his biography. I'll tell you that what you do read about Mueller is that he loved his first wife. He, He loved her tremendously. He goes on and on in his journal about saying how whenever he met her, he was always happy to see her whether it be in the market or at the orphan house or as they're getting ready in the morning, he always delighted to see her. One day, Mueller's wife was sick. Her name was Mary. And they called the doctor, and the doctor diagnosed her with rheumatic fever. They knew this was a death sentence, and Mary died shortly thereafter. He recalls days later how he was strengthened during this time. Listen, listen to this. He says, The last portion of Scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God, this is Psalm 8411. You can look at it in your Bible now. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Okay, so there's hundreds of ways to misapply that verse. You know, don't, don't put that on the back of your really nice car. That might send the wrong message there. But, but here's Mueller's understanding of it. He says, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partic- partakers of grace. To all such, he will give glory also. I said to myself, with regard to this latter part, no good thing will he withhold. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I've been saved by the blood of Christ. And I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. In other words, what Mueller's saying is, uh, this verse isn't a promise to the perfect. It's, it's a promise to the righteous, those who place their faith in God. Okay, he clarifies, I'm not saying I'm perfect. Here's what he says then. You know, I've trusted in God. I'm a sinner who's repented. He says, therefore, based on Psalm 84:11, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. It's a belief that God is at all times doing what's best for his children. If you want a New Testament version of this, Romans 8.32. God, who did not spare his own son, but freely offered him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? Here's Mueller's takeaway in the connection to Habakkuk. And so... My heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word and believing what he says. Friends, that's what we do in prayer. And as we rehearse 
his goodness to us. As we in faith believe what we don't feel like believing. The, res- the, the result of rehearsing the character of God is our faith in him is strengthened. What a good reminder, by the way, to read our Bibles regularly. To continue to get a glimpse of who God is so we might be reminded who the God is we're praying to. Two more parts of this prayer. That was the longest one. Let's look at verse 16 now. Let's call this third part rest. Rest. We have request. We have rehearsal. Now we have rest. Notice the effect on Habakkuk. We're back now in Habakkuk chapter three. In verse 16, he says, I heard and my inward parts tremble. Sound of my lips tingled, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. He is flummoxed, he is despairing, uh, he is terrified. We need to think, why is he terrified? And why did Josh just say this is rest? He's, he's very bad at reading. Uh, what, what do we mean by rest here? Well, he's terrified, notice now, because of God. He's overwhelmed by God. He's in awe of who God is. There is so much time in chapter 1 given to describing how terrifying the Babylonians are. But there's way more time given in this book to explaining how terrifying God is. And so, friend, whatever you're up against in your life, no, no trial you're facing is more dreadful than the Lord who's allowing that trial. This is a very practical thing to consider in your prayer life. But what do we mean by rest? Well, we see that he ends by saying, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Now, there's an interpretive issue here. Some of your versions make it seem like Habakkuk is waiting for the invasion to come on the Israelites on Jerusalem. Other of your Bible translations might make it seem like he's waiting for judgment to one day come on the Babylonians. We could discuss that all over. I think because of the language, it's what it says here in the version I'm reading. He's waiting for judgment to come on them. I actually think that makes sense in the midst of the minor prophets. So the book of Nahum is the comforting effect of God's judgment. The book of Habakkuk is the comforting effect of God in the midst of judgment. So I think it makes sense within the book of the 12. But verse 20 Sorry, this is an application of chapter 2, verse 20. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's the quiet acceptance of God's plan and character. This is who God is. And though it's going to be hard, I will embrace it. Friends, faith is not living in denial. Faith is not, we're not, optimist. We're realists. We're biblicists. We're Christians. And so we, as Mueller says, take God at his word. That's what Habakkuk says. This is what God is going to do. I accept it quietly, trusting in him. Not complaining, but trusting. May we do the same. Number four, rejoicing. Number four, rejoicing. This is that famous section that many people know of Habakkuk verses 17 to 19. And what we have here is a sort of resolved determination to place hope in God, to rest in his character, to not be governed by our circumstances. 
He gives all of these uh, situations a sort of if-then. If the fig tree should not blossom, no produce on the vines, yield of the olive should fail. Now, all these if statements are in increasing severity. It's worse and worse. So those first two, no figs, no produce on the vines. Well, that's about using, uh, losing luxuries, delicacies. Figs were a delicacy. Wine was a luxury. Okay, if we lose the extra stuff. And then the next two, uh, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields no food, well, those are sort of uh, necessities that make life easier. Again, uh, olives are used for cooking. Uh, the grain, again, was used for cooking. But these last two is when life gets really hard. I mean, the flock should be cut off from the fold. No cattle in the stalls. This is talking about no food, no clothing, no warmth. Though it be sort of bad, really bad, though it be the worst. No matter the circumstance, Habakkuk says. And then verse 18 Yet I will exalt in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now we need to be very careful here what we do with the word rejoice. Because sometimes I think, oh, some Christians believe that rejoice is you have the biggest smile on your face and there's no more tears. And so, yeah, I'm at the funeral, but no tissues for me. I'm rejoicing. And rejoicing is not so much about increased smiles or decreased tears. Rejoicing is about resolved, increased confidence. Joylessness is equivalent with hopelessness. And we have Habakkuk probably still with tears, probably with still some trepidation, exalting, celebrating, and he is celebrating God. His confidence is in God. Not his stuff, but him. Not in the end result, but in God himself. Notice again, I exalt in Yahweh, not the promise of a future kingdom. I rejoice in the God of my salvation, not just in that salvation. Yahweh is my strength. And he has secured me. Friends, it's about him. It's rejoicing in him. It's delighting in him. It's confidence in him. That's why we sing, when all around my soul gives way, he, him, his character, who he has revealed himself to be, that is all my hope and stay. Forget all's well that ends well. All is well in Christ, in God, in his character. And as we know him and we're secure in him, we can rejoice. We remain hopeful. Friends will disappoint us. The news disturbs us. Finances will dissolve. Trials will devastate. But God remains God. And so he will make my legs like hinds feet. It's an illustration of a, of a goat uh, climbing the mountain. You've seen animals who on all fours, hills that we would slip down, secure, stable, able to ascend. That's who we are in the midst of trials when our hope is in him. So when we pray, we pray with joy. We pray with confidence because the things we rehearsed about God are actually true. They're actually true. Friends, 
when we're in the midst of trials, our job is to continue to ask and then answer the question once again, who is God? To rehearse for ourselves, to ask and to answer, who is our God? Who is our God? He is the God who made everything. Every star, every planet, every cell declares his name and he upholds it all by his word. Who is our God? He is the unchanging God, the eternal God, the all-powerful God, the ever-present God. Who is our God? He is the faithful God who makes and keeps his promises, who creates and keeps a people, who saved them and will save all of us. Who is our God? He is Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam, uh, the true and better Moses, the great prophet, priest, and king, the Lamb of God who has paid for our sins. Who is your God? He is the one who in Christ has chosen you and made you alive and forgiven you and keeps you. He adopted you, forgave you. He is the one who matures us, keeps us, still loves us, and one day will finish what he started. Christian, meditate on him. Not your circumstances, not your feelings, not even his blessings, him. And as you breathe in his goodness, then you will breathe out joy in him. You will exalt in him. You will trust him. And you will pray to him. Because in faith you call out knowing who he is. This is our God. Let the righteous have faith in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that you bring us here every Sunday morning and Sunday night not to give us a greater glimpse of ourselves, but a greater glimpse of you. Lord, we need you. As we try to remain faithful, we need you. We need your grace to sustain us. But we need you to fuel our faith by reminding us of who you are and of your promises. Thank you, Lord, for comforting us with you, with your presence, with the knowledge of you. Help us to be faithful. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.